You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 176, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And yes, I'm back after about a year absence. The paradox is no longer on ice. Maybe it's chilling heavily, but it's it's back for a little bit just because there's something going on that I think is so important. Uh, it's a, I don't know if you call it a trend, but it's something I've definitely been percolating in my mind and I just need to get off my chest. And so here goes. This is for maybe my usual audience, but certainly people who are owners of small, medium, large companies. We've talked about a lot of things in this show People are disruptive, innovative within the healthcare space and how you're delivering care different ways at lower costs, higher quality oftentimes. But I don't think we've assimilated that and certainly put it together in, in one cohesive plan. Now, I was actually contacted recently by someone who has done this, and I'm hoping to have him on my show to discuss this. But what we want to talk about today is how you as a CEO, a CFO, HR, whomever in a company can save your business over 50% in healthcare costs. Now, the largest spend in a business and their overhead is usually healthcare, as like, you know, as a percentage of overhead. And so if you could cut that in half or around there, or maybe even more, what would you do with that money? I mean, it's probably a lot of money. At some companies, it could easily be seven, eight figures, right? And so if you can provide the same care at significantly less cost, what would you do? Would you provide better wages, more benefits that you weren't offering before, maybe freer health care for your employees. I mean, there are all kinds of things you could do. It's going to help your bottom line competitively. It'll help your business uh, in the marketplace. Probably helps with employee retention. So that's the backdrop of why I'm doing this series. This is going to be a you know, series. is just going to be one episode, but we're going to go through the whole plan, basically, 
and how you can save 50%. So if you're not a usual listener to the show, I'm going to go over some things that I'll try and describe thoroughly enough so that you can move forward. But ultimately, it's going to require some investigation on your part after the show is done. I want to first say, too, that nothing I'm going to talk about is stuff that's wild or crazy that requires extraordinary lengths that you have to go to with your company in order to achieve these savings. You're not like getting all your medications from Slovakia or something like that. You're not doing anything totally radical. It's maybe radical in the sense of how people usually get their health care. But we're going to change things a little bit. But essentially, you're getting the same sort of stuff. You're still going to the same hospital, still going to the same imaging centers, for the most part, getting the same level of care. Maybe it's delivered a little differently, but it for your employees, it'll seem pretty much the same. And so rest assured that there'll be some questions to HR if you're an HR director, but hopefully it's going to seem very much familiar to your employees. And so you should still, they should still get the same benefits and have the same sort of care level of care they expect. And probably it's going to be better. And now you may be ask yourself, well, this is, can't be possible because if this was possible, easy, people will be doing this. And there are lots of things that if there were, that people don't realize that they can do <laughs> that actually make a lot of sense that just they don't do because much like a government program, there is a, a certain level of inertia in sort of the way things work. Also, if not a lot of people know about this way of doing things, it's possible that just if that institutional knowledge is not with, known within the industry. It's just not known. And so people don't do it. So this will allow you to be on the forefront of what will, I think, certainly be the trend going forward. It's going to, it's going to continue gaining momentum, continue becoming more popular. Already, probably 5 to 10% of businesses and on some level employ these techniques. And so you're not doing something, again, totally out of the ordinary. But it's going to, be, it's going to give you a competitive advantage uh, in the marketplace. And so hang with me. And if you don't believe me, all I can say is, Hang through this. It's going to be worth it. And also just know that this one fact, 75% of the amount of money spent in healthcare doesn't actually go towards providing care. Now, that doesn't probably surprise you because you've seen the astronomical prices of healthcare. But most of the money that's spent for healthcare doesn't actually go to taking care of any people. That's because there are a tremendous amount of grifters, middlemen, etc. in healthcare. And systems are not designed efficiently too. If you, anyone works in a healthcare system, you know that, you know that's the case. I mean, every business has a bureaucracy and levels of inefficiency, and that's why small companies can be nimble, et cetera. But healthcare systems, uh, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, they're, they're designed many ways for a system that is designed to extract money, but not to provide care. And so we're going to find ways of getting around that so you can still get the care without spending all that money. And it can be done, and it's people are doing it today. And you should be part of this trend. So it is possible. If you can cut off even half of that 75%, you're saving 40% in your healthcare, right? So let's go get into it here. Now, on some level, everyone knows what healthcare is, right? It's a package you buy from a health insurance company. They're all the big players, they're little players. But for the most part, it, they're all the same in the sense that there are certain components that you expect with the healthcare. So there is inpatient, outpatient services, imaging, laboratory, surgical services, maybe some care, like a long-term care, like rehab facilities, um, maybe ER services, maternity care. So that's what we sort of envision when we think we're going to get that sort of service. And when we go to our broker, because most companies, unless you're really small, are going to have a broker that they deal with who helps them find the best plan, puts it together so that you can, when you have your in, 
your annual enrollment for your employees at whatever time of year, usually it's around fall, you're getting ready for January 1st, but whenever it is, they're going to provide these plans and they give these options, whether it's a fee for service, like a point of care fee for service, an HSA, an HMO, some sort of combination. Uh, and they'll come to you and they'll provide and say, this is what it, these are all, this is what they envision with a healthcare plan. It's going to have this for a deductible, this for a premium, this is what the copay is expected from your from your employees when they go to get a medication, a prescription, or a generic, uh, et cetera. You know, all these things that we are sort of used to when it comes to health insurance and how we interact with the world of healthcare, with hospitals and imaging centers, et cetera. And so there's another part of the insurance that we don't ever think about, but it's actually present. And it's pretty obvious once you actually step back for a moment. When you're buying your care, you'll notice that when you have a plan that there is a maximum out-of-pocket expense. So there's a max amount that you pay for your premiums until you hit a certain point when you hit your deductible. Once you hit your deductible, there's usually a certain level that you're expected to now be covered by the insurance company primarily. So you know, oftentimes they'll have like an 80-20. So once you hit your deductible, once you paid 100% of healthcare costs of you know whatever your deductible is, let's say $5,000, then beyond that, the healthcare uh, insurance company is going to cover 80% of it or 90% of whatever, and then you're as an employee or you know, someone who holds that insurance, you're going to be expected to carry just a very small fraction of that, 10% or 20%, until you hit some certain out-of-pocket maximum. So if you're an insurance company, you, you are protected because what happens if there's a company with 30 employees and five of them get cancer and just terrible luck and there's all kinds of people getting radiation, surgery, expensive pharmaceutical agents to you know, for for their treatment, well, now you run up huge costs. Well, the insurance company buys insurance. So part of the package, part of the premium, part of the cost of the insurance when you're buying as an employer, and at some level, the employee, is there's a component that they don't ever talk about, but that's there, obviously. It's called stop-loss insurance. So that is insurance policy that the insurance company, the healthcare insurance company, takes out in order to protect them from, from large claims. So the catastrophic claims from someone, uh, either as a group or as an individual, and they usually have both those are part of the policy. And so the insurance company is sort of on the hook, we'll say, up to a certain point. And then once it hits some certain point of amount of money that, you know, that they've decided to insure against, then this insurance company will pick up the rest. And so that's called stop loss insurance. And so part of your package is all the stuff you see, but it's also that. And so there's a stop loss insurance that exists. There are ways that you can remove the stop-loss insurance from that package. So if you are a company and decide to go self-funded, you might have heard this before, it does not mean that you're creating your own healthcare system. You're essentially just saying, we're going to go get a insurance package off the rack, usually, from some insurance company. Let's say, let's pick on Aetna. And so Aetna is going to do your claims. They'll, they'll figure out the contracts with all the different providers in the area, uh, and then you've just decided we're going to we're going to take a certain element of risk as a company because we think we have younger employees or we have a better health plan or better you know healthy living sort of strategies within our company maybe and so we're going to we're going to set our level of risk and how much we have to hold in reserve in order to cover large claims and so once we hit to some certain maximum then the insurance the stop loss insurance company will cover the rest and so you can save money if you're a company by sort of, in a sense, gambling and saying, we're going to be healthier than we expect, and so we're going to 
we're going to insure up to a certain point. And you may may actually insure beyond what you needed. And so you may have money left over at the end of the year and you can roll that into the next year. And then you might need less you need less insurance because you've got a larger pool of reserves in case there's a catastrophic claim uh, from one of your employees or as a company-wide. Uh, and so the stop-loss insurance can be purchased by either the package you buy out of the box from Aetna or it can be one that you just purchase separately and so that you are self-funded. You can imagine there are some savings that can occur, but it essentially comes down to how much you're willing to risk, I guess I won't say gamble, but risk. So that's the self-funding aspect of it. And that's very important because the stop loss and the self-funding is something that's critical for you getting to the point where I want you to get, where you can save significant money in your healthcare while still providing the same care for your employees. And in fact, often better. So just keep in mind that the stop loss insurance is something you can buy as a company and the amount you buy is determined by how much risk you're willing to take as a company and how much you're willing to hold it in reserves in case you have catastrophic claims against your health plan. So the next section we'll talk about is how to fix healthcare. <laughs> and, oh yeah, that's right, I've had 170 plus episodes of how healthcare is broken and how we fix it. We're not going to go into specifics of that today. Longtime listeners know sort of, they probably have an idea of where we're going. But just know this, that if you're a company and you're HR person or you're a CFO or you're the CEO, you're not looking to fix healthcare anytime. Like not even tomorrow, but not even at all. Maybe you vote for someone. Maybe you'll support someone who has a, some comprehensive plan of healthcare. But you and I know you're not going to go to the state capitol. You're not heading to D.C. You're not going to be trying to push for certain legislative and regulatory fixes to help your bottom line in, in, your, in your business. You're just running your business as best you can. And so when I say we're going to fix healthcare, we're not going to fix healthcare in the, plan, in the way that most people think when we need to fix healthcare. We're not going to enact some sort of change on a large scale that's going to fix things. We are going to fix healthcare at our, we'll say, we're going to fix a little corner of healthcare in our, our little corner of the world, right? We're just going to fix what we can fix. So if enough people did this, well, then the market would have to respond and it would actually fix itself. But just beware that we are fixing healthcare by changing the way we interact with the healthcare system. So we're going to be smart about it. We're going to do this in a very competitive way. And we're going to save a lot of money and still provide the care that our employees need and the, the kind of care that we want to provide our employees, which will give us a competitive edge in the marketplace. So again, we are not going to be fixing healthcare for anyone else. We're just fixing it for ourselves. We still have a very, very good healthcare system in this country. It works very well. It is also designed to extract as much money as possible from employers and employees. It's very good at that. In fact, it may be better at that than even providing care, right? I think we could all agree on that. Every year, the cost goes up, exceeding the rate of inflation by a lot. And so we're going to just fix it for our business. And what the rest of everyone else does, that's their business. But ours is just to fix our company and make take care of our people. And so that's what we're going to do, but we're not going to do it by through legislative action. So do not think that that's what, that's what this is about. But by doing what we're going to do, it will fix healthcare for a lot of people, and it may change your community slightly because people will respond differently to market forces within healthcare space, both people in healthcare and those outside who hear about how awesome your healthcare is or your company. The next thing we have to discuss is the 85-15 rule or 80-20 rule. This is basically a, a 
federal legislation that says there, there's only a certain amount of money that a health insurance company can spend on claims, or I should say on overhead, and profit. So essentially, there's an 80-20 rule. So if you're a small group, the, the insurance company can only spend 20% of the revenue they get can be spent on, well, paid out either as profits or salaries, overhead, all that sort of thing. And 80% has to go towards claims. So the majority of money that an insurance company gets has to go out the door to pay for services. Now, I talked already before, there's a lot of middlemen in the way who are getting a cut of that 80% it goes out the door. But the point is, is only, eight, only 20% can go towards non-claims. So that's your profits are somewhere in there. If you're a large group, it's more like 15% that uh, I think the rule goes. And I'm not exactly sure. I admit, I don't know what the difference is from small or large groups. But just know that there's a very small percentage, 15%, that, can, that your profits have to come out of in addition to all your operating costs and everything else. And so how much you can actually squeeze out of that with your overhead to actual profits, well, that probably depends on how big a percentage we're talking about. So it's 15%. And this will become very evident of why this is so important to why this healthcare system is screwy, but also why it works the way it does. Because I think if you're like me, it's taken me a long time, even with this show, talking to people. I, I didn't understand why our healthcare system is so screwy. I started this show with a couple goals, and I thought I had about three episodes in me. I was going to talk about main certification, how it's rotten, the third-party payer system, and direct primary care. And so the third-party peer system essentially is that a third party is paying the bills, right? So if I'm a patient, I go and I get my, go to the hospital, I have my surgery. I'm not the one paying the bills. Now, I'm indirectly paying because I'm paying premiums, but I'm paying to the insurance company. And so the insurance company is a third payer in this mix, right? They're the ones, they're technically the ones interacting with the hospital in this case and the professionals who provide the services like the surgeons, anesthesiologists, et cetera. And the patient actually does not make the transactions. A third party comes in and pays. And so that causes some weird distortions. But even so, it doesn't make sense of why healthcare gets so much more expensive all the time because there are many reasons you think it shouldn't. There are, there are competing interests. One should keep the price low. One's trying to make the prices higher, right? This is how it always happens in the market. But yet the prices always go up quite a bit every year over year. And so exactly why? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next. So the one thing you may notice in the market is that lots of healthcare systems own insurance companies. And so now if we're thinking to ourselves, all right, so the people providing the care are the healthcare systems. The people paying for the care are the insurance companies. So you would think in a normal market, if you go and get anything, you're, you're going to the store, you're buying something, you want to pay as little as possible for that product, whatever it might be. The store wants to charge you as much as possible. And so you have competing interests. You agree upon some sort of price that works for you, works for them, and then you sell your product. Yet imagine if you own the grocery store, you know, the store that you're going to, well, how would you agree on a price? Because you have, now you have the same interest. You want to try and maximize the amount of, it's weird, right? doesn't make any sense. And so how is it possible that a health plan can also own health insurance? It doesn't make any sense until you understand the 8515 rule. We'll just call it 8515 because that's where you see it most uh, in the literature. So imagine this. You have, you're an insurance company 
and you have a plan with some uh, company and you have $10 million in claims one year. So you pay out $10 million in claims. Now with the 8515 rule, you can hold back for overhead and profits $1.5 million, right? That's the 15%. 85% has to go towards care somehow. So you, you put spool out $8.5 million in claims. So now if you're an insurance company, you would think in general, you would say, well, the best thing for us is to keep costs down as low as possible so that when we capture those premiums, we can then, we can either, we either can um, charge much less in premiums. So that gives us a competitive edge in the marketplace because we're charging less. So obviously people would pick us over another, another insurance plan or that we're just going to you know, keep claims low so that we can have more profit. Except that's not what happens because actually the prices go up all the time. So how is this? Well, it's because of the 85-15 rule. So just like I said, if you had $10 million, 85% is $8.5 million. $1.5 million is where your profit and overhead came from. Well, assume you have the same amount of people, right? And now let's say you do a great job with your contracting. In fact, you were so good, you drive down the cost 50%. We make it exaggerate so it's more obvious. Well, now as a company, you can only use $750,000 for or towards overhead and profit. Well, clearly, you're worse off. In fact, you could argue that if you made claims higher and you had worse contracts and it would now cost you $100 million in claims, well, now you can keep $15 million in profits and overhead. Well, it makes much more sense than to have claims as high as possible. And so now you can see how a hospital an insurance company can coexist because obviously the hospital is still have the same incentive. They still want the prices high. They still want to capture as much revenue as possible for delivering the same service they provided last year, but they can jack it up the price 10%. And the insurance company is not going to fight that much because if their claims go up 10%, well, now their profits can go up more. They, they charge more in premiums. And you could say, well, there's probably an incentive to try and keep your premiums a little bit lower than your competitor. And so, yes, there is a tension that you can't go up too much, but they're making more of their money on the end of the 85-15 uh, the rule than they are probably in ca premium capture. And so this is how you have a system whereby the insurance company and the hospitals both profit from claim prices going up. And so the reason hospital prices go up so dramatically is because someone's willing to pay them. Now, we're going to keep Medicare out of this because Medicare is not part of this discussion because we're talking about private insurance. But we're talking about a system that's pretty much dominated by commercial payers. And you can see why you have these this synergistic effect. And you can see why they work so well together to extract money because they are, have the exact same incentives to raise prices. There's no one on the other end who's working to really control costs. And yes, there is some incentive for the insurance companies to keep costs down a little bit because they don't want to pay an exorbitant amount because they do have to try and keep within their premiums. However, they are protected with the stop-loss insurance, so they can't get creamed in one year. Obviously, that makes their insurance more expensive next year if they have, so they just have to keep changing things. But essentially, they still have generally the same incentive structure in order to keep claims high. It is why. I had an experience where I had a, uh, I was on call, and I've, I've documented this in one of the episodes earlier previously. I'm off to try and find which episode it was. But anyway, I had a, 
I had an episode where I fainted. I was on a call. I was sick. Anyway, woke up. I bumped my head. I had to go to the ER, got sewed up. Anyway, the point is, is that I had went to my physician. She generally, she's a DPC physician. She generally deals with people paying cash. She said, well, I see you have insurance. Do you want me to, do you want me to submit a Holter monitor to your insurance? I know that my other patients can get the Holter monitor and it's monitoring for a week with an interpretation by a cardiologist for $250 cash. I don't know what it is for, for insurance, but I could submit it to insurance if you'd like. I said, eh, sure, let's just do that because I've got insurance. I think we're met the deductible, whatever. So I got it done. It's all normal. Don't worry about it, me. And I didn't think anything of it but because you know how long it takes for bills to come. Well, a few months later, I get a bill in the mail from the company that does the Holter monitor. And they said, just so you know, your insurance company denied our coverage, denied payment for the test. And so we are sending you this bill for $5,000. That's right. It was a 2,000% markup. <laughs> and what they would have accepted $250, you know, a couple months before. Now they're billing me for $5,000. I called my physician. I was panicked. She calls the company and they say, oh, don't worry. This go, we go back and forth the insurance companies and eventually we'll agree on some price and then well, they'll pay the claim. Don't worry. Your, your, your patient shouldn't worry about his bill. Just tell him to ignore it for now. So I thought, well, that's good. And then I started thinking about it and I have an 80-20 deductible at the time. So once the deductible is met, I'm responsible for 20% of what the remaining bit. So, you know, $5,000 bill, the insurance company pays 4000 and then I'm on the hook for 1000 Again, <laughs> this is way worse than if I had just paid 250 up front. But this just shows you the amount of grift and just waste and excess that's in the system. It's insane. So I'm you know, worried about that this, that this is going to happen. Months and months and months later, I get a letter in the mail, from one of those explanation benefits, you know, the one that says, this is not a bill. There's an explanation benefits that said that, hey, we've accepted it. We were paid out the uh, the amount to the to the uh, company for the Holter monitor, but just know we we negotiated really hard. We only paid forty seven hundred dollars for that five thousand dollar test, <laughs> and they paid the eighty percent of that, and so I was on the hook for I don't know what's like what's that like nine hundred dollars or something like that. And so you know you should expect to see a bill for nine hundred dollars or something like that in the mail. Well, again I'm you know beside myself I'm like oh I can't believe I have to pay for this so. I call my doctor. She calls the company. The Holter Monitor company says, don't worry. We'll usually negotiate that down to like, ah, I don't know, 250 bucks. <laughs> so they were going to, of course, charge me exactly what they charged me to start with, but also have it, having already extracted over, you know, like $4,000 from the insurance company. So the hard-nosed negotiation, well, that insurance company didn't negotiate very hard had they known that this company would take $250 cash right away. It's totally ludicrous, right? But it shows you the level of, uh, or the lack of intensity in getting good contracts with these, uh, with these providers, we'll call them. Now, it's partly because they don't have, they probably are not really trying hard because, I mean, I'm sure those people are trying hard, but they don't even have any idea what the market is for that sort of test. And so they're like, oh, I guess, you know, I got 5% off. I did a pretty good job. And that person in that cubicle who works that out, I suppose, they think they did a good job. But anyway, the point is that you have really, really bad contracts with the insurance company. They don't fight like crazy. They don't like figure this out ahead of time. Because if they did, they would never accept that sort of charge. If they knew that you could pay 250 cash, there's no way they'd accept a charge like that. 
but they're okay with that because as long as it's not a catastrophically high charge and not hitting their stop loss insurance, most of the money is being extracted from the employer or in this case, employee. They don't care. The more revenue they bring in, the more they, they pay out as in claims, the more they can take as profit. It's as simple as that. And so now talking about another step, we talked about this in the show many times before, it's called a PBM or pharmacy benefit manager. They work pretty much the same way in this regard. They capture a percent of the charges. And so they have the same incentive to have as high a charge as they can get in order to capture the most amount of revenue. Now, pharmacy benefit manager briefly is uh, a truly a middleman. They actually just do contracting. They don't actually distribute anything. No product comes through their office. They're some of the biggest lobbyists in the country. Now, not surprisingly, they're owned by insurance companies because they are found to be extremely profitable. And so insurance companies had to pay out these PBMs for their formularies. And so what a pharmacy benefit manager is essentially is it is a way for uh, to get large volume discounts on medications. And so then they would then sell those lists, those access to these discounts, or these, these medications to hospitals and pharmacies. It kind of depends. Uh, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, it's different designations. But all you need to know is a pharmacy benefit manager, PBMs. And so they would get large volume discounts. If you're a pharmaceutical company, you want to try and get on the formulary. And so in order to get on the formulary, you have to offer volume discounts. And so usually you offer like 20, 30% off, whatever. And so these PBMs pay less for the same medication than the, the pharmaceutical company would charge someone who's not part of the PBM. Now, the key for this is knowing a couple of things. One is they're getting these volume discounts, but they are not passing them on to anyone else. And so that's how they make their money, right? So the same principle applies here as it does for uh, the insurance companies with their uh, with their things to claims. So the higher the cost of the drug and the larger the, so let's say it's a 20% discount, $100 drug, now the farm, the PBM makes 20 bucks on that. The $20, they pass a pittance onto the people at the other end and so they pocket most of that $20. If they then change the formulary and have a drug, first-line drug now that's more expensive, maybe $1,000, they still get the same 20% discount. Now they make 200 bucks. And, you know, again, the St. Pittens, they pass on to the consumer, which is, in this case, the insurance company, or, you know, that's usually where it ends up. So you can see they're incentivized to have really expensive medications in their formulary. Certainly not there to drive down price. I mean, their their whole goal is to drive as much volume and to try and get as um, high a discount on expensive medications. And they make those calculations of what is there on their formulary and the order, the tier of the formulary, based on what kind of deals they can get and how much money they can extract in that step. That's what drives them. It's not like, oh, this is the best drug. It's usually what is the best deal we can get for our PBM. Insurance companies, after they figured out this and they realized that, oh my gosh, these guys are making piles of money hand over fist. We want to get in on this action. And so instead of contracting these PBMs, they just bought them out or vice versa. And so you now you have insurance companies, PBMs, and health plans, or health, I should say healthcare systems, that are all sort of maybe owned, <laughs> they're all like together. And so you'll see this with like, if you try and use a different PBM or try and get your pharmaceuticals a different way than what your insurance company uh, offers, 
they get really upset because that is a large moneymaker for them. And so the PBMs are not helping you. They are another gigantic middleman that drives up the costs of pharmaceuticals and drives up the costs of healthcare in general. And so there are people who sell these products to you and to my, my company and all companies. And they're called brokers, insurance brokers. Now these are, I want to start, but these are not bad people. They're working within a system that they understand and a system that is designed to sell, right? And so when they go to present plan options for your group, it's entirely dependent on the market, obviously, locally, the prices are given, and the large carriers that are in the area. Brokers, almost always, and not always, and that's this will be important later on, are going to get these off-the-shelf plans. Now, they will talk to the insurance companies. They obviously have relationships with them. Their commissions are largely driven uh, by the insurance companies themselves. And so, as with anything, if you're not paying for the service, you're not getting the service, right? So, uh, just like if you were hire someone who's a financial planner and they get all their money based on how many trades they make, it is almost a certainty that they will make a lot more trades than someone who's not paid on a per trade fee. Uh, if you have someone who is totally free, well, that must mean they're getting commissions somewhere else and they're getting commissions probably from the insurance company as for every contract that they sell and depends on the size of the contract, right? That's how they get paid. I mean, they're working, they're people working, <laughs> so they're not going to work for free. So someone's paying them. Uh, even if you're paying them, they generally have a large a relationship with the, the health care plans and they're getting some commissions from them too. Vacations, et cetera, those sorts of things. Uh, it doesn't make it a dirty system. It just explains how the system works. And so the healthcare plans, just like um, I would say it's akin to a dealership. Dealerships have relationships usually with a couple car companies, sometimes just one. And depending on how much they sell in volume and how, you know, how quickly they sell, they can get various incentives, right, from the parent company. So, you know, if, if you sell more cars than anyone else, at, you know, pickup trucks at Ford dealership, you may get a an extra volume discount from Ford selling those vehicles. So you can just make a little extra money. Either you have a financial incentive or the fact that you can sell the cars a little bit cheaper, the more likely to sell even more. Anyway, that's how it works. And insurance industry is no different. I mean, this is a very common sales thing. It's not a nothing mysterious about this. But it's important for you to know that that insurance broker is probably not looking for out-of-the-box solutions to try and lower costs. They're looking for the solutions that are easiest, the ones they're familiar with, uh, and then ones that they are have relationships with the previous companies. And again, there's nothing uh, crooked. There's nothing uh, underhanded about this whole process. It's just that's how it works, and that's how lots of sales work. And again, there's nothing wrong with it, but just you should be aware that that's how it works. And if it does, you can imagine that they may not have the exact same interest that you do in greeting Ford. Now, they may say, well, I went to the four major health plan plans in the area, and this is the best deal I could get. And it probably is true that it's probably the best premium and options and deductibles and co-pays and coverage networks and those sorts of things they could get within that existing plan, within you know the existing area. But those are not that's not the best plan construction that you could have for your group in order to save money. And that's just because I think probably they don't even know how to do it, even if they wanted to. And even if they knew how to do it, the structure, the way they get paid and the way their whole company is designed and built is unlikely 
to yield the results that you want. Because that's just not the way you do things, right? You wouldn't expect a company that does things a certain way, uh, you go in and say, hey, I want you to do things totally differently. They're not going to be able to do it because it's just not what they do. And so there's no reason to expect them to be able to do that. Now, maybe they can do two different ways, but it's I think it's unlikely for a company that is designed to do things one way to be able to do it a second way as effectively. Okay, so we're coming close to the end where we're going to explain how all this stuff works. But the last component thing you need to know, understand is a DPC or direct primary care. This is not critical to this plan formation, but it's going to make it more efficient and make it work better for you. Long-time listeners of the show know what a direct primary care is. I mean, I have one. It's not super complicated. Essentially, a direct primary care is a physician, usually primary care, obviously, who, instead of working on a through an insurance-based system, works on a cash fee-based system, but not on a per-visit basis, right? So if you had a uh, someone who said, hey, every time you come see me, it's 50 bucks, well, it's, you're, you know, it's very unlikely to show up and have any care taken by the patient person because, I mean, you don't want to pay 50 bucks every time you see them. But they said, hey, I'm available 24-7. I can do all kinds of things for free as long as you pay a membership fee. We all pay membership fees for things all the time. Streaming services, gym memberships, uh, millions of things, right? Like you know, meals sent to your house, all kinds of things. We're very used to a membership-based model. And so the direct primary care model essentially is you pay this month monthly fee and you get 24-7 access to a physician. Usually it's fairly competitive rates, pretty inexpensive considering you get access to a physician. It's great for the physicians because they get rid of all the, the the noise, all the insurance companies, all that sort of stuff is out of their out of their hair. Charting's a lot easier. As a physician, you can have a whole lot less patients. Uh, and you can have uh, so you have so you know your patients better, you have a better relationship with them. You've got to do some things that you weren't doing before. You gotta chase after money, make sure people pay their monthly fees, etc. So there are some hassles on the physician end. But ultimately, you're going to have less sort of uh, waste in the sense that you're not paying a bunch of other people to do stuff that is not really important to care, right? Like you don't, to have a biller in your office, they're not actually providing any care, right? I mean, a person who does billing, who actually like does coding and figures out procedure codes and, uh, you know, make sure it's submitted properly to the insurance, make sure the payment comes back. Again, that's like an ad, an added many added steps, right, between you and the consumer, in this case, the patient. And so just, we're basically taking all that out and just saying, hey, you give me your credit card, I'll charge you 100 bucks a month, let's say, uh, and I'll take care of you and your, your family or something like that. And then you can text me anytime. I'll, if I'm on vacation, I make sure you have someone who can cover for me, who can show up. And you can come as many times as you need. My goal is to keep you out of the office. So if it's stuff that is easy to take care of over the phone, I'll take care of it. I'll call in prescriptions. I'll do whatever needs needs to be done. But if you need to come in, you can come in because I'm I've got a quarter of the size of the patient panel I used to have before. Instead of having ten thousand or sorry two thousand patients, I only five hundred now. Well, it's a lot easier for me to see you. And so, then I can have maybe four or five visits a day. I can spend some time with you instead of getting the six minutes, or it's probably even less than that actually. Usually, just actually see the physician. Uh, now you're going to get maybe an hour. Maybe a half hour, whatever you want, doesn't matter. As long as it takes to figure out whatever's going on with you. I'm going to know you better. I'm going to provide better care. And so that's what direct primary care is. And you can obviously get into more details of that, but that just gives you an idea of what direct primary care is. And you can see how it's a different relationship than the current healthcare system. I mean, for one thing, you're seeing a physician every time. Most of the time you go to primary care, I shouldn't say most of the time, I should say often, <laughs> you're seeing uh, a non-physician, right? You're seeing a nurse practitioner, a PA, 
someone else who is helping take care of you. Uh, you know, that's how you want to run your business. That's fine. But just this is a different sort of level of care, I suppose, since you're always seeing a physician. Now, not all DPCs are always docs. I suppose there are all kinds of exceptions to this, but essentially drug primary care is an important component of this healthcare plan I'm going to talk about, but it's not critical. Okay. So let's put it all together. So we can agree that we get some of the highest level of care in this country that you get in the world. We don't agree. Well, we agree that it's way too expensive. There's little doubt about that. And we know that 75% of money that goes towards healthcare costs actually doesn't go towards any care. So you spend a hundred bucks, only 25 bucks actually goes to people who are actually taking care of you. Actually spent on the care itself. There's a lot of fluff in them. There's a whole lot of wasted money in the system. And we've seen how that happens. And I won't say collusion, but the, the relationship between healthcare plans and health insurance, PBMs and those two plans are the insurance brokers. We can see how all the, they all work together in some respects to create a system or a system evolved, just was sort of by happenstance became this and it became more efficient at extracting money <laughs> and grifting, I suppose, in healthcare. And so you just need to find a way to get around those things. So if you know you're getting good care and you know medic the medications work really well, you just need to find ways of getting all that stuff without having to pay all those middlemen. So how do you do that? So step number one, you have to be self-funded. You have to you have to leave the healthcare off-the-shelf market in order to make it work. And there'll be evident why in just a moment. So that means you're going to have to buy stop-loss insurance. You're going to have to figure out some level of risk for your company and buy an appropriate amount of insurance to prevent you from having to you know, go bankrupt from healthcare expenses. So that's step one. That's the easy one because you can still do that even using traditional healthcare plans. But as I point out my example with my Holter monitor, the, the contracting that insurance companies have with hospitals and imaging providers and laboratories and surgery centers, et cetera, is not great. It's not something that's going to wow you with their negotiating skills because quite frankly, they're not good deals. <laughs> You're paying too much. I mean, we know that people are willing to take less for the same, and we know that not only they're willing to take less, but they must make money if they're doing that. Like that Holter monitor company, they wouldn't charge me 250 if they didn't make money doing it. Now, obviously, they make way more money by dealing with the insurance company, but there's obviously a cost to them going back and forth for six, nine months. There's a loss, you know, accounts receivable, there's all kinds of costs to have to having to go through that battle. So they need to charge a whole lot more to insurance companies to extract that money. But the point is, there's just a lot of waste in that whole system. And clearly they can make money if you just went, you bypass all those middle people, right? And so what do you need to do? You need to bypass those middle people. And so you need to design a healthcare plan to just avoid all that nonsense. So now you're, you're an HR manager. You're saying, whoa, wait a minute. I can understand the self-funding, but now you're expecting me to create my own healthcare system. That's impossible. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. I don't have the personnel. I, you know, I, don't, if, I can't imagine how expensive this is, and I totally agree with you. And so I would never tell you, I got this great plan. You just have to make your own healthcare system. It's not like that. It turns out, there are a lot of people who understand that these are the same problems other people have. And so what you need to do is find those people 
Those people who design systems, healthcare plans for companies like yours, small, medium, or large, who have the people who that who can who either know how to do the contracting, who can find the third-party administrators, the people who do the, the claim work. You just need to find those people, and they can help design the plan for you. I mean, that's what they do, and they're really good at it. Now they'll charge you money for that, probably a lot more than you're paying your broker now. But that's because they're not getting any commission on the back end. They're not getting commission from Aetna or any of the large insurance companies because they're not selling their products. They're just having you contract directly to the hospital, directly to the outpatient, inpatient services, the laboratories, imaging centers. And so for them, they have one customer, and that's you. Their main customer is not actually the insurance company anymore. So now they're working for you and their incentive, however you want to set up the incentive structure, could be entirely dependent on how much money you save or whatever they want to do. You just create a, a, a fee, right? So it makes much more sense to have this sort of system. Well, and here's the question. How much can they cut out of costs? I mean, can they go to the hospital and, and pay a lot less? Well, we know if you look at what Medicare reimburses hospitals for, but they accept a whole lot less money than what they get from these insurance companies, commercial payers for services. So we know that the, the hospitals accept it. We know that imaging centers accept it. We know that laboratories accept it. And so there's just a massive amount of money that goes towards, I don't know, basically the healthcare plans, the PBMs, all these guys who are making a lot of extra money. There are ways of saving money on pharmaceuticals where you bypass the expensive PBMs, and maybe now you have a PBM, and there are plenty, there are lots of them, and I've had interviews with some on my show, who actually are very fully transparent. And so instead of keeping those large discounts themselves as a way of making money, they just charge you. Let's say, hey, it's going to be you know 3% or whatever, and you get everything else in savings, or you just pay a lot less for your medications. They can massively cut your pharmaceutical costs as well. There are other ways to save money in pharmaceuticals, too. I won't go into the details of that sort of thing. But needless to say, there are ways that these brokers can save you massive amounts of money. And so even if they cut out half of all the waste in the system, that's going to save you 40%. So instead of paying 4 or 5% more every year, you're not paying less every year. And now, if you want to bring in a DPC doc, and so now you're bringing in the direct primary care physicians, who, if you're listening to my explanation of them, sound kind of a lot better, at least the way the system works and the way they can focus on care and the personalization of care, probably a lot better than large sort of like uh, doctor mills that you may go through, go to. They're probably going to know you as a patient a lot better or your employees. They're probably overall going to provide better care. Not always, but I think in general, they're going to provide better, more personalized care. They're going to be able to stay on top of your health problems your employees' health problems a lot better. They still have access to the same healthcare system everyone else does, the same hospitals and laboratories, but they're just used to navigating outside the with those prices. So they can also steer you different ways. They probably also are have time to take care of things that the other primary care doesn't, so you probably have less referrals to specialists. I mean, you can still get referred if you need to, but they probably can take care of more stuff. And it's not because they're better docs than the other docs, they might be, but it's just because they have time. 
when you only have five minutes for a patient and your revenue is dependent on how many patients you see, well, you just can't spend a lot of time talking to patients. But if now you're not limited by how much time you spend with someone, well, now you can spend the time to get to know them and figure out their problem and probably solve a lot of the problems. And primary care, they actually know how to do some stuff. They're not specialists. They're not going to be able to do everything, but they can do some basic things. So instead of going to the specialist for basic things, now you're just going to the specialist for specialized things, which honestly, if you're a specialist, most specialists would prefer that anyway. They don't want to see you for like taking earwax out of your ear. They'd rather have the pediatrician or the family practice doc do that. And that's what you could do if you go to these DPCs. And so you can reduce, if you're self-funding, you can reduce your healthcare spend in general to your plan by utilizing the direct primary care physicians because they're going to send less patients to specialists. They're probably going to have less procedures, maybe less tests, or maybe they can do the tests in their office for a fraction of the cost. It's entirely possible that they're going to be able to take care of things that ordinarily have had to go to urgent care. They may be able to suture up someone who has a fall. There are a lot of things they can do. They can bypass the traditional system, still provide that care you need from a physician, but you don't have to pay those prices that you're paying in the hospital or the urgent care or the emergency room. So you can see how you can save money and also probably have better care. And I would imagine after your employees get used to it, they'd be much more, they'd be much happier and thrilled to have their own personal doctor who's on call 24 seven to take care of them. Most people would like that. They think only executives get concierge. So you can see how this would, would be probably better healthcare. We're already saving 40%, maybe more on healthcare. And I've not told you that you have to go to Zimbabwe for your care. You're not flying down to Mexico for procedures. Now, maybe you'll find that it makes sense to fly to other cities. It might be cheaper for a total knee replacement in, I don't know, some other state. I mean, that's possible. Those you can figure out with your broker. But there might be a surgery center in town that can do those surgeries with the same surgeons that work at the other hospitals that are very talented at a fraction of the cost. And maybe if you negotiate prices with them, you pay way less in a bundled price. Anything's possible once you have this plan. But again, it'll be up to you finding the right broker. Your traditional broker is probably not the one who can do this. You need someone who actually does this for a living. And I've had a couple of them on my show. Uh, Katie Talento, David Contorno. There are many more too. And I hope to maybe have a couple more on my show at some point to talk about it too. Because these are the people you want to contact. And you want to get a hold of them. Because they can help you save money. So if you want a big massive bonus this year, convince your CEO Show them that you can do all this. In a time when you can't find workers, would it be great to be able to retain workers? Would it be great to raise their pay 5% because you cut your healthcare spend by 50? You'd be a hero in the C-suite, right? So I'd encourage you to share this with your fellow employees, colleagues, maybe people in other businesses, friends. Tell them this is what they should do. They should at least look into it. I think it is fiscal malpractice to not investigate this. Now, maybe you'll say, oh, this is just not for me. It sounds too complicated. It sounds risky. Yeah, that's fine. But I think it, you owe it to yourself to look into this. Because again, I'm not telling you to build your own hospitals and surgery centers and find your own physicians. Really, all that's required is that you have someone who helps you navigate this space to find the people to provide the care that you want for your employees so they stay healthy, so they're engaged with your company, and that you save money 
which helps your bottom line, makes you more competitive, and allows you to provide more ser- more services, more benefits for your employees, and more profits for your shareholders or your partners, whoever owns the owners of the business. It only makes sense. And honestly, this is where everyone's going to be going because there is so much money, so much money wasted, so much money spent. And it's hard to stay competitive, not only in the you know, domestic market, but globally, right? You've got to f- compete hard. And so if you can find ways to cut your healthcare costs in half, I mean, don't you owe it to yourself to do that? To look into it? I, I'm amazed that people think it's, eh, I don't know if that's the right thing. Like, how can you feel that way? I think you have to look into this sort of thing. That's, of course, my opinion. I've been doing the show. I'm obviously someone who thinks a little bit outside the box. But I think even if you're not, you, you at least owe it to yourself to talk to someone about implementing this. And you know, what would it mean? So I would encourage you to look into that. I don't have all the names of people you could, who could do this. You just need to, I don't know, Google it, I suppose. I mentioned two names, but there are, I'm sure, many, many, many more people who do this sort of thing. And as this beca- gain, continues to gain more popularity, it'll be easier and easier to find these sorts of people. And so with that, I'll bid you adieu. Thank you so much for rejoining me on The Paradox. I hope to do a couple more things. I'm very busy with my other podcast, The Final Four is on the Schedule, which you find at tffinots.com, which is a Michigan State basketball podcast. It has nothing to do with medicine. It's kind of a fun distraction. and um, But it obviously is very busy, especially when the basketball season starts. So I want to get this in before the season starts, where I may not have time to do more Paradox episodes. But hopefully you appreciate this. Again, if you want to know more, you can try and get a hold of me if you want, and I can maybe provide some help. I would go back and listen to the shows with David Contorno and Katie Talento. Uh, and then there are plenty of other people you can find in this space. If you just start looking for this, you will find it. And it's like most things in life. Once you start looking for it, you start seeing a lot more of it. And so there are plenty of opportunities for you to save money. Please do it. And by doing this, we're going to help change healthcare. And that's what ultimately I think in some respects I, we all want to do. We want to make this make sense. We want to be able to provide real care for our employees. Some of them can't afford care. And although they may have insurance, they actually can't afford to use the insurance. And so this would make it a lot easier for them. And so I'm hoping that this will help continue spurring this movement forward. So with that, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>